You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. Hey everybody, this is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And I am very excited to have Rick Stagenborg here. Uh, actually uh, in, in, in a union office um, uh, visiting. And uh, Rick, uh, welcome on to the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. Thanks, Ken. Good to be here. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Um, everybody, I uh, ran into Rick uh, during a, a, a picket, a labor picket. So uh, I know Rick's, Rick's, Rick's there for the people. And uh, I've, I've talked to Rick over time about uh, a lot of the really incredible work he's done uh, over the years uh, for, for peace and uh, uh, politics that I would say are deep concern for the people, um, deep concern for um, the government in, in the public sector serving people compared to where we are uh, right now. You've had some time as uh, uh, heading up uh, Soldiers for Peace International and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of work. Um, can you tell the listeners a bit about your experiences and what's led you to be an advocate for running for office, for being active on issues of um, public health and public banking? So could you just give a little bit of background of, you know, what sparked, uh, you know, your deep energy towards that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, first of all, I need to correct the misconception that I've accomplished a lot of things. <clears throat> I actually didn't get involved in activism in, uh, in earnest until about 2010. And before that, I was a practicing psychiatrist. I worked for the VA and in community mental health. Uh, I was in the military. I was trained uh, uh, initially in the uh, Army at Triple Medical Center in Hawaii, or as I like to say, I was defending the Western perimeter in my time in the service. So anyway, uh, I guess it really goes all the way back to childhood. I was brought up in the Catholic Church, and um, I found what the priest had to say about how we're supposed to treat each other compelling. So even though I stopped going to church when I was 10 years old because I couldn't stand the dogma, when I finally found out what that there was dogma too, uh, that stuck with me. It's just kind of the way my dad lives his life and or lived his life, and it's the kind of way that I try to live my life. And so it just comes naturally for me to care about other people. When I chose my profession, it was not based on the fact that doctors make good money. It was based on the fact that I wanted to serve people, particularly underserved populations, because I have a, a real appreciation for what people go through. And uh, thought, I th I've always thought that everybody deserves access to the health care when they need it. And people People without any means are the ones that suffer the most from this economic system. So it was just a natural thing that I went into community psychiatry, serving the uh, underserved. And then in the uh, VA also, one of the main qualifications is income. Uh, income or uh, service-connected disability are the two main ways to get VA services. So I felt like I was serving the underserved there too. Anyway, that's just the way it is. And uh, around 2010, I really woke up to what was going on. Uh, until then, I was just 
figured I was good enough if I was serving people one-on-one or in group therapy, um, changing their lives that way. And I always, when I was young, I actually had an ambition to be a politician, but the more I learned about politics, the more disgusted I got. But somehow I held on to that naive conception that Democrats were on our side and the Republicans were not so much. They were favoring the corporation. So I just tootled along, focusing on my studies and my work. And about 2009, I guess it was really, when President Obama said that we were going to reform health care, I started digging into what the story was about the health care system and healthcare systems in other country and through Physicians for a National Health Program, found out that it's a no-brainer. Single payer is the only way to go. Uh, single payer universal health care, no insurance companies is by far the preferred way to go. And then when I saw the political process, it was pretty clear right from the beginning that they weren't, well, Obama said he wasn't going to consider it. Said if we were really designing the system from scratch, we do that, but you know we can't do that. And I asked myself, well, why can't we do that? Well, it's because uh, not just President Obama, but all politicians depend on money from corporations and uh, rich folks who profit from healthcare. They profit from war. They profit from all the things that I'm against. And I really kind of, I felt a little panicky at first when I realized that. Um, I think it's fair to say I went a little manic. So, yeah, I got frantically involved in a lot of different things. Um, I really thought about what it would take to change the system. And I decided that uh, actually about six months before Citizens United was decided, when they said they were going to consider the case, I decided, well, there we go. If we want to get rid of the crooked politicians, we need to change the way their campaigns are financed first. And uh, furthermore, uh, I, I... realized that part of the reason they could do that was because of corporate personhood. That had to do with the series of decisions that led to Citizens United. And uh, so I just said, well, okay, I'll work on that. I'll work on a constitutional amendment. And uh, that was actually before I found out about Move to Amend. They were really getting organized about the same time. We both saw what was coming, that this would be an opportunity to educate the public. And damn it, they were going to get it now. It's going to be so obvious. Well, that's when I decided to run for the Senate. I said, ultimately, the only way this is going to happen is if we make it a campaign issue, a litmus test for people running for federal office. And just tell them, you know, if if you're not going to, if that's the bottom line, if you're not going to do that, I don't care what else you say you're going to do because you're not going to get anything accomplished. So anyway, it was a third party ticket. Didn't get a lot of attention. I didn't realize at the time third parties really didn't have much support for candidates. So uh, anyway, it was a learning experience. And one of the things I learned was that people don't seem to be able to prioritize. They don't seem to get the fact that some problems are at the root and other things are just a branch off from that. I really wanted to strike at the root. Um, and it was it was kind of frustrating. Um, I worked at it for several years trying to popularize this idea. Meanwhile, all the momentum that moved to amend had built up sort of, not all of it, but a lot of it dissipated. Some of the groups I was working with, they just didn't meet anymore. They just, I was like, well, we already got signatures. We, we, we 
tried to get uh, resolutions passed, but they didn't get that. It's a multi-year process, and, and it should have had a clear goal from the beginning. And that goal was to make it a campaign limits test and move to amend. Eventually did start doing that around 2014, I think it was. Anyway, um, <clears throat> it's not too late. I encourage people to get involved with that. That's one of the keys. There are a lot of other things that need to be done to reform uh, government and make our so-called representatives represent us instead of big money. But anyway, that's how I got involved in activism. Like I said, I think everything stems from that. I mean, I cared about war, but I always thought it was so crazy that I didn't really study it. You know, that song, how does it go? Study war no more. We're going to study war no more. Yeah. Well, I, I never studied it. I thought it's crazy. You know, we stopped the Vietnam War. Surely Americans have learned their lesson. That's how naive I was. I joined the military myself thinking, oh, well, they're going to send me anyplace crazy. I was wrong. But fortunately, I got out of the military before we got into the Persian Gulf War. So I was spared that but as a VA psychiatrist. I, uh, man, I don't know why this gets me. No, I, no, no. I used to be able to talk to the veterans about their stories without choking up. Yeah. You yeah. can't do that right, in right. therapy, but I guess I've gotten soft. Um, let's just say I heard a lot of horrible stories. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I wanted to say on, um, just a couple points as far as, uh, background you mentioned early on, uh, you know, the Catholic Church. I grew up in uh, Rhode Island and not a very religious family at all, but uh, Catholicism uh, within Rhode Island is very predominant. There's a lot of um, uh, immigrant groups. They're historically uh, Catholic. The Portuguese are there, uh, uh, Canadian, French, uh, Italians all tend to be uh, Catholic immigrants. So it's a very big part of it. And um, for me, I I uh, ended up encountering maybe a more sophisticated way of looking at the church when I studied at Marquette University, which is a, a Jesuit institution in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, I had this kind of, and I still do it, This, I was reading uh, papal encyclicals, which are written every few years by uh, the Pope, and they're about issues, right? And just, my, you know, I'm a philosopher, so I'm like, what what is what is the church saying? What are the word what are the words on the issues that are so pressing on this point? The environment, labor, things like that. Um, so it's like a, ph a philosophical interest. And Pope John Paul II was actually a trained philosopher. Uh, he studied French phenomenology. Was very well trained in 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 modern philosophy. But I'm pointing to afterwards, uh, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, conservative. Um, viewed to be a conservative uh, uh, papal administrator um, and read his encyclicals uh, afterwards. And I, I, I've told people this, people don't go looking for encyclicals, but the, what has to be said about labor, the dignity of labor, what has to be said about care of the planet and the environment is expounded is expounded there as official church doctrine, which I take legitimately. Now I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I'm very interested in intellectual intellectual engagement. And some of the I'm 
assuming a bit, some of the principles that you said you got out of the Catholic Church of ex- maybe example of Jesus, of compassion, of caring for others, of kind of like a moral change of, of how to interact with folks. And those are the parts I was sensitive to as, as well. As a matter of fact, you know, my labor work sometimes like in my head, I feel, you know, like I studied Catholic labor and, you know, just like that kind of idea of the, of the people, of, of the meek, of the powerless. Um, so I really picked up on, on, you know, on, on what you were saying there. Um, another part too, uh, with regards to my deep appreciation for your work with veterans at, at the VA, I'm not particularly familiar, you know, telling about some of it. Um, but I was also taught very young from my dad who almost was called to Vietnam with two young kids. And my dad, he, he didn't have to go. He, he the war had ended, um, wasn't called. Um, but my dad is very young age told me a way to interact with veterans with, with thanks out of the politics and everything, but out of the thanks that citizens can be called, you can be called and you may have to serve. And that might've been part of his duty. So no matter what the experience was of those folks, uh, I, I learned, I, I, I learned a sensitivity and, and a connection to that, to that sacrifice. And, um, so it's for that reasons, personally, I really appreciate the work that you've done and, and what you had to say. Um, about the big issues, I, I enjoy how you're talking about the big issues. And you say it's a naivete, and, and I know there's a little bit of that. You have to have a certain type of naivete to, 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 think, about, to think about the reformatting of, of, of government or public health and public. You have, to, you have to still pretend or still act naive to, to even start. So I, I think that's, that's a good instinct. Um, I wanted to chat with you about, uh, some recent work we've talked about and, 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 and what you're doing, um, regarding public banking. And, uh, I wanted you to describe the, the general, the general need or what you see as the need for public banking and what it is that you're working on what it can provide for a regular U.S. citizen. Yeah, well, public banking does serve a definite need, but really the main reason I got involved was because I realized that the big banks, Wall Street in general, Wall Street investors as well as bankers, and the ones that are both, they're the ones that are driving just about everything that's wrong. I mean, They are the ones that exploit fossil fuel resources and promote their use and promote wars in order to control them. Uh, They are the ones who are privatizing Medicare and the VA to suck more profit out of it at the cost of efficiency, at the cost of ungodly amounts of taxpayer money. And they're getting away with it because they also control the media. And, And the media, of course, controls the discourse on these things for most people. Uh, People who follow the mainstream media are just, they have this vision that things are either this way or that way. And then the real thing, ones that find themselves really sophisticated will say, well, I know it's somewhere in between, but, (laughs) 
And of course, it's not yeah. anywhere in between because it's the corporate powers that own these things and are telling you it's this or that. And, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are both batting for the same team. They just take turns. And, uh, well, that was the inside I had in 2010. <laughs> that's, yeah, why, yeah. that's why I ran for a third-party ticket. And I sort of, I knew that these deliberations, for instance, on, on health care were not going to go anywhere. So, uh, yeah, I was, I, I got past my naivete really quick. But public banking is a totally different thing. Public banking is very realistic. We have a public bank in North Dakota. And the thing about public banks, I guess I should start by defining them. The uh, state um, charters a bank that could be financed in a number of different ways. And its mission is to serve the community, serve the citizens. So that means it's totally different. It's not sucking out profits to give to Wall Street investors. That was what drew, drew me to it. It's a way to fight the big banks. It's a way to fight against war. It's a way to f fight for real healthcare reform. So it's everything that I want. It's And it's more realistic than trying to pass a constitutional amendment. Not that that is not a valid goal. If we ever wake people up enough, they'll, they'll get behind that and we can do it. So that's not naive. I, I was just a little naive about how hard it would be. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was. Uh, I, I've lived in the Midwest for a bit. Um, spent time in Wisconsin and in Minnesota. And one of the, the previous times we had talked about this, I had mentioned, you know, some of the politics that arise of more of a collectivist. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the the politics or the. Uh, farmers collecting resources, right? Whether it be the, the crops or dealing with the market, uh, how do we finance each other? How do we help each other? That type of community banking. So there's, there's, I think there's spots where there's these deep roots of understanding, like we are this, we are farmers. We need to take care of ourselves. The person in Washington doesn't understand this. The person from a few counties over doesn't understand this. We understand this and, and, and I've always seen that the politics for me and being around there tend to be uh, collect more co seemingly more collectivist based or move like uh, you think of the historical progressive movement, uh, which was well, both Republican and Democrats, you know, it's the 1930s, 40s, kind of the reformist uh, about things. Um so, and of course you mentioned the bank in North Dakota, there's some histories, like many type of things with a new idea or a, an idea that sticks out there. There's traditions, uh, be behind this. And I thought one of the interesting things you had to say, which really hit for me just now was the role in finance banks tied to, tied to war, tied to resources, tied to, um, in, you need money for that to be to happen and in so it's like a larger connections of what banks do or the power that that they hold um so you're working on this issue and uh you talk to folks about it um what are you finding out about what people think about the idea uh and it kind of their openness or willingness to 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 think about it and see how it might benefit them any anecdotes or things you've gleaned from doing that i guess the one thing that i've learned from doing this kind of work is that uh 
there aren't any good arguments against it, apparently. At least nobody that I've met has thought of any arguments against it. I mean, you have to work out the nuts and bolts, but it's definitely doable because it's been done and it's working very well. Um, and the whole idea of a bank that serves the people, I mean, we would put our state funds in there instead of sending it to Wall Street banks. That's that's how it affects them. They're not going to get our money. And if we did this all over the country, that's a big chunk of money. And in the process, we educate people that that Wall Street is the root of the problem. That was the case during the Occupy movement, and a lot of people said there was a problem, but it wasn't just a problem. It was really the root. That's what, uh, uh, what's the name of that magazine, Adbusters? Uh, in that article that uh, kind of sparked this whole thing, or it uh, that's exactly what they said. They, in fact, they said it was a constitutional, we need a constitutional amendment, and we need to rein in the banks. That would be the main goal of, that's the first thing the politicians have to do if we get an honest Congress. So to me, that was a no-brainer. These are the two things I was already thinking about. And uh, and they brought it together. And I got so excited about that movement. But, you know, it was dogmatism. It was a Catholic church all over, except non-hierarchical. But other than that, I mean, <clears throat> the philosophy was dogmatic. Yeah. You, thou shalt not have any, you know, organizations lend your, their support to this movement. Thou shalt have no priorities. I'm like, are you kidding me? Go back and read that article. There are you've got to prioritize if you want to accomplish anything. Yeah. So anyway, it faded as I expected, but you know, it, it did a lot of good things. Sure. It raised a lot of awareness. And again, even though they didn't say the banks were the main problem, that and, and corruption of government, uh, they kind of implied it a lot. And it really amazed me how quickly people forgot that. It's sort of like Citizens United. People always mention it when you're on the topic of corruption, but then they go on to something. Forget about but, it otherwise, yeah. it's still in the air. <laughs> they don't get that that is the problem. Give me any problem and I will relate well just about any problem that's national or international, and I will relate it to corruption in our government, because our government really is the figurehead for a transnational. Um, I want to avoid terms that people think are conspiratorial, but, you know, there are certain individuals who are so freaking rich, you know, like the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, and people always mention those. They're not sitting around in a little group making plans and then giving orders and everybody follows them all the way down the chain. That's not how it works. You know, you have to develop a level of sophistication that will enable you to see just how this works if you want to fight it. There's no other way. You know, you can fight little battles and skirmishes, but you're not going to have a war plan unless you understand who you're against. And it is a relatively small group of people who control a relatively small number of uh, corporations that own other corporations. And most of those, or at least the top 100 or so, are almost all financial institutions. So when I say it's the bankers on Wall Street, I mean it. And it's not just the United States. They're in league with similar folks in Europe primarily in Japan and, you know, a few in Japan, a few other places. Um, but that's really what we're fighting. 
Yeah, I uh, since we're talking since we're talking politics, um, I've 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 noticed or just just seen uh, a development, you know, over time, probably Citizen United, post Citizen United uh, pandemic and such consolidation of media, uh, social media, where you know, part of like doing a podcast or having discussions like this is to be outside of the American discourse, which I see a ritualistic pattern, right? So if I'm a Republican, I get my briefings on the batshit crazy stuff of the day, have my counter arguments, and it's a, it's an echo chamber that's been studied, right? The faxes used to go out from Rush Limbaugh. I mean, it was the echo chamber for the day. And then on, uh, you know, Democrats uh, in, engaged in this, you know, either or type of dichotomy. And I actually read uh, the newer language of Democrats, which is actually um, kind of Trumpy and trying to jolt into the populism of the people and express righteous outrage, I, I, I think, which. Many of the issues are legitimate, you know, within the Democratic Party. But we seem bound here into this echo chamber and these options of 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 either or. And um, for me and my how I've developed in my political beliefs, you know, Democrat and equally useless. They don't even touch my view, touch my view of, of, of the world. So, Rick, how do how do we uh, how do we disrupt how do we disrupt whether it's consolidation or just this either or in American politics? Um, how do you disrupt that? Well, you have to attack on multiple fronts, and you have to have a plan. You have to have priorities. You have to have objectives, and you have to be realistic and yet not let that affect your willingness to fight the fight. Because even though the odds are very, very long, in fact, some people would say insurmountable, especially with global climate change over our heads, um, it's still possible. And I don't know, maybe that goes back to my roots in the Catholic Church. You know, maybe It's not like I believe God can intervene, but it's like if there is a God, and if God created this world, then he, is it just like a, a balloon that he pops at the end or wants to see pop it, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, I think that if there is a God, God knew the beginning and everything afterward before he thought it into existence. You know, it could consider all the poss- it could consider all the possibilities. And uh, this one came into existence. And maybe an infinite number of other ideas of God's popped into existence, too. Either way, you know, um, if you can picture a, a way that if God can do that, and if you think about, you know, the stories, I'm only familiar really with the Christian stories of God, but, uh, you know, God created everything from, not from nothing, from God, because God was all there was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't create it from nothing, he created it from God. So, in a sense, everything that exists in the physical world is part of God. And I have this fantasy, that could be true, I don't know that our consciousness and the consciousness of the animals and the trees that are screaming because we're killing them all um, are one. and Or maybe there's just one consciousness and it filters through us. And this is how God views its creation, you know, if, 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 if. 
I don't know. But in the end, you make a choice whether you believe in God or not. Um, you can just say, I don't need it, but you know what? I think we do. <laughs> yeah. But I have this, I have this idea that maybe, just maybe, if we all come to uh, somehow, uh, enough of us come to a common understanding, that we can maybe will things to happen. Because honestly, you know, when you look at it from a physical point of view, what's in store for us with global climate change, I, I seems like a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. And that is either extinction or at least collapse of human civilization. So I would prefer to believe there's a poss possible way out. And that, that would be a, a really mass change in consciousness. And even if we can't do it like magically, um, I don't think it's magical. I think there are physical things we don't understand yet. Uh, even if we can't do it that way, maybe, you know, if there's a way we can do it through the conventional means, that's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. So that kind of helps me think about it. And I like playing with the ideas anyway. But, uh, yeah, I think we can do it. But it's going to take a mass change of consciousness. And then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Everybody, Rick Stagenborg, answering to something rather than nothing question without even me prompting it. What a great, what a, what a great guest. I uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things. I, I I think about what you're talking about a bit, and um, you know, I find on uh, just very generally speaking, in order to frame it, the idea of uh, God, I move much more towards what you had commented upon, kind of like the permutation or the presence of whether it's God or whatever that is within throughout all. And some philosophers um, have, have argued that throughout history. An example of one maybe not well known was uh, uh, Spinoza uh, who wrote in such a way about the presence of God in all things that he has historically always been accused of being atheist or Buddhistic in, <laughs> in his thinking in a certain way. Um, so that's like in a, that's like maybe kind of like one way of thinking about it is like kind of the permutation. And I think for me, that's the territory that is the only territory where I can breathe and make sense of things because the other pieces are counterintuitive, uh, a gendered, gendered presence, uh, separate realm, all those type of things. To, they don't get it. They don't start for me. And I understand faith and I've studied religion. I've done all these things. And um, at a certain point, you have to feel that that is to be true or not in order to comport yourself with it, which which I don't. So I've always been, I guess, on what you were talking about, much more towards the presence of what we would deem to be God in in, in, in the consciousness in, 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 in the world. And, uh, I think it's a really interesting way to, uh, to talk about what do we do about the, the bind that we're in. I think you're talking there is that we can change our minds. We can connect to something which is more good or holy or beneficial for humans, as opposed to destruction, uh, <laughs> corrosion, harm and death. Um, so, I find just that general approach to be um, uh, to be really to be really appealing. Um, could you tell me uh, as far as uh, one more on the on the public uh, banking? Can you tell me? Um, could you give me an example of um, the type of 
uh, transactions or, or loans or the structure that public banking could well, be more expedient, affordable, you get the money where it needs to be. Can you give a, just kind of a couple ideas of how that might function more or differently than what we see now? Well, it could, but I was really enjoying our philosophical conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, good questions. I'm sure some of your listeners are interested in that. Well, public banks, uh, they're like a state bank is what I'm working on here in Oregon. We have a small group of people who push through legislation with, with our champions in the Senate, obviously, and in the House, who uh, that would establish a task force to really work out the details. But what state banks have in common, just to keep it to state banks, is, like I said, they're chartered by the state government. They take state funds and they use them in ways that uh, finance things that benefit the public. So the most the easiest example to give is funding bond measures. Uh, so if a small town needs to replace its sewer system, they usually go to the big banks, and the big banks will laugh at them because this is, we won't make enough profit off that. But it's too big for local banks, okay? Certain size cities. Sure. That's a common problem. That's where the biggest need is. But it's not just about need. It's also about things that we can accomplish. So the bank in North Dakota funds student loans. Um, other options, I don't know what all the uh, bank in North Dakota does. I know it makes farm loans. Farmers are still getting screwed, just like they were back in the populist days, the 1880s, 1890s, and through the 20s. <laughs> well, and still, obviously, in the 30s, too. But they didn't have a state bank. But a state bank can do this. And they've done it in other countries, land banks, they call them, uh, that focus specifically on, on those kind of things. So we can do that. We can make loans to farmers, and you know, we can direct them in a certain way. Like instead of having a farm bill that's written, um, dictated by Monsanto and Cargill and, and whatnot, their lobbyists, we can do a farm bill locally in Oregon that helps small farmers, organic farmers. Um, the kind of farming that's good for the community as well as the economy and good for people's health. We can promote those values because we're not subject to the legal dictate that we have to make a profit for our investors. Because if we do finance it privately, and some of these banks are, the way it would work is we'd give them a fixed rate of return and they'd have nothing to say about the way the banks run. The bank would be independent of the state government also, so the politicians don't screw with it. And it would be run by banking professionals following sound banking principles. The main difference being that it would be directed towards serving the people of Oregon, helping the economy of Oregon, and directed to specific projects that uh, we deem priorities. Uh, Minority-owned businesses, that's another good example where we could direct uh, loans. We could specifically give favorable terms, uh, more favorable terms. I mean, all these banks would be be able to get, uh, excuse me, all these loans would be more favorable than from the big banks because we're not sucking any profit out of it. We are charging fees. 
and we're charging more than it costs for one thing to protect the bank. Um, but for another thing, over and above what we need to have a, that, that safety reserve in the bank, we'll be able to give that back to the state. That's what they do in North Dakota. So excess profits go back in the state coffers. As I get, I don't know, not exactly a dividend because the state, I guess the state, well, it depends on how you fund it, who owns it exactly, technically. But uh, anyway, so that money could be used to fund, oh, I don't know, education. Gee, wouldn't that be nice, Ken, being a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Please, public public education. <laughs> yeah, or a universal health care system at state level uh, until we you know, reform federal government, and then we can get it at the national level. Um, probably, you know, actually, we'd probably have both. We'd have a state-level administration of a federal program like Canada. That's optimal, because then you got the different states experimenting with different ways of doing it and finding the best way. So, but, uh, you know, we'd have... Per- I'm, 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 I'm getting off onto the subject of universal health care, but we could we could move move that forward, and and make it seem more feasible. It's already feasible because it'll save so much money. But it's with this argument, say, look, here's some more money for it. Here's more money for education. Maybe we can even lower taxes. Theoretically, we could. I mean, ideally, though, that would. We really have to rein in the federal government. I'm sorry, uh, you know, because. As long as the corporations are in control, everything the state pays for for a universal health care system. Everything the state pays for for anything else is going to be too is going to be more expensive, so we can't keep taxing people forever to uh, to meet that cost of paying off the rentier. Yeah. yeah. Well, everybody, we're talking Rick Stagenborg, and uh, great to talk uh, philosophy, uh, public policy, and uh, you uh, indicated a little bit of inkling of talking about. Uh, Art. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of preface, I'm going to create a little bit of a backdrop for this, just kind of to, to, to frame it. Um, uh, one of, one of the things, uh, is that art is always important in any society or any culture. And, um, I want to, as a backdrop, just talk about like what I see as big mistakes sometimes historically, um, where I view art as being something just kind of of a unto itself human expression, something you know very inexact in in, in framing this. Um, and at times, I've seen you know movements that I've studied, including communism, which look you know, a certain way of religion and art. And I believe you know when we look at art as just a just a, a manifestation of a dominant ideology. Um, so I'm going to give you an example. So in the Chinese, uh, the, the cultural revolution, the idea was to kind of extinguish or eliminate a bourgeoisie kind of uh, art forms, right? And we could think of you know, fine paintings and there could be an excess there. But then there was a narrowing and a legitimacy of what art is narrowed down to. Does this emerge from the people in class consciousness? It gets way too cute. And, you know, you end up in an idea of like regulating, regulating art. And I think when we talk about God and art, there's something about humans, say what you will, whatever you believe that 
these things like seem to be largely ungovernable when it comes to uh, behavior. Um, so I've always been kind of, you know, thinking about in terms of social, like how we look at art. But I, I was wondering your perspective um, as far as because art can be so useful in making change and changing consciousness. Uh, you could talk for a while or I could talk for a while, Rick trying to explain something and then they somebody sees a, a painting or a picture that shows uh, the atrocity or what's going on and it did it. It, it like that's what got from point a to b um so with that kind of long exposition in the background i was just wondering what what you thought uh, art is well that's a really good question uh you know i went to college undergraduate for eight years and studied i I think I took at least a survey course in just about every subject there is except fine arts. I never touched fine arts. The only the closest I came was studying Spanish in college. Um, and I didn't really have an appreciation for it. I'm sort of a left brain person. And when I look at modern art, I say, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> I don't have time to sit around and guess what you meant or, you know, speculate on this and that. I, I you know. Tell me what you're talking about. And I, I, I always kind of related the kind of art that you're talking about, like Diego Rivera, you know. Wow, it's right there, what the message is. So I do appreciate that kind of art. You know, I'm one of those guys. I don't know art, but I know what I like. Yeah. Um, and that's what I like. But I, I do now understand more since I've been involved in activism, the power of art. It's really is important. And I like your lead into this too. What do we mean by art? Um, I certainly don't restrict art to, you know, the fine arts or classical music or any of that stuff. It, art is simply an abstract expression. And there's all kinds of different ways to do it. Maybe, maybe the way that I speak about certain things is artistic. Maybe it's a form of poetry. You know, I, like you said, I don't believe we should restrict the definition. It is what it is. And maybe it should be defined by the function. Maybe art evokes something in you that uh, stirs you to a greater consciousness. And all of that is promoting what I was talking about with God. Uh, you said you're more comfortable thinking about unity and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's yeah. not as opposed to God. That is God. It's the same thing. Right. Give it what word you want. It's the same thing. You know, I, I went to a UU uh, fellowship one time. And mentioned the word God in that. Oh, my God. Somebody just freaked out. He freaked out. Don't mention God in this place. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what do you want me to call it? <laughs> <laughs> and I met another person in another UU congregation who I, I mentioned God. And she said, um, she said, oh, no, I'm an atheist. And I said, oh, really? What, what do you believe in? I mean, you're, you come to UU. What, do you, what is this universal of the universal principles. <laughs> and she said, well, it is the universe. And they said, you mean God? Of course, that's not really strictly true because God, most people would conceive of God as being beyond the physical universe, you know, a higher dimension. But that's not really that abstract if you've studied any modern physics. There are higher dimensions. Certainly mathematically that, you know, you can construct models of them. Um, but in in uh, particle physics, string theory says that there have to be higher dimensions. So when you talk about things that we can't explain through physics, but we can observe, 
like how my brain tells my hand to move, you know? Is that because some sensory input translated through my brain and my brain automatically did, or is it because I have free will? Now, how many of your listeners don't believe in free will? Of course, you're a philosopher. You know that we don't know free will exists. That's an act of faith, too. The fact of the matter is we construct our own realities, and we choose which ones we want to live in. So I understand the ugliness of the physical reality that I live in. I also understand there's a lot of beauty. So one of the things that art can give us is remind us that there's all that beauty for those of us who've chosen to uh, steep ourselves in this ugliness. Um, We need that, too, to be human. Um, And to be, I think, uh, the manifestation of some higher um, oneness that has a power of its own, and a but that power is multiplied exponentially when it's a power of collective intent and belief and action. All right, I'm taking the Rick Stagenborg course, philosophy and social policy. Uh, everybody, um, it's been great to chat with you, uh, Rick, um, and 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 everybody. Uh, um, gonna have uh, Rick just mention uh, a couple places for you to 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 find out about the the issues um, that are important to him uh, that he works on. Again, uh, Soldiers for Peace uh, International and uh, public banking. And uh, uh, so, folks, you know, here I got it as uh, Oregon Public Banking dot com as the website to learn about uh within the state of oregon uh initiatives towards the idea of public banking but uh uh rick uh could could you leave the listeners with uh, maybe a place to 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 find you if they want to follow up with you know this is all politics and thinking and uh philosophy or anything like that but if folks if you want folks to plug into what you're up to how did they do that well um it's not so much what I'm uh, plugging to what I'm doing exactly, but you can find out more about public banking and what we are doing uh, through the Oregon Public Banking Alliance by going to OregonPublicBanking.com. And uh, I'm also deeply involved in Healthcare for All Oregon, and you can uh, learn about that at uh, HCAO.org. That's for Healthcare for All Oregon.org. And uh, I guess uh, one place you can go to learn more about what I'm doing for peace, uh, one of the groups I'm with is Veterans for Peace, and uh, they have a national website, veteransforpeace.org. They're doing important work. So that's one of the ways that I'm uh, working in the anti-war movement. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick. I want to personally uh, thank you for 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 the things that you do. Is I, I love chatting with you, and uh, heck, you know, kicking around the philosophy, talking about uh, important issues. I can tell you, um, hearing you talk about the connection between you know the banking, uh, finance, um, uh, you know, war, what's going on with the Citizen United, um, as far as you know, our politics and party politics. I just really appreciate. Um, your analysis kind of pulling those things together because i think what we're talking about are all big and heavy and can kind of collapse on you right public banking what about our election system why is there something rather than nothing <laughs> what is our you know there's there's these, these these big things and i think um 
I think uh, you you really help with um, kind of pulling together and uh, inspiring towards action. I just really loved chatting with you and uh, really wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on to the podcast. This is something rather than nothing.